Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Welcome to another panel episode of Life on the Line. In October 2018, we released three veterans panel podcasts where veterans of various eras and service backgrounds compared their experiences on topics such as returning home, transition out of the military, trauma, and more. For this panel episode, we're taking a bit more of an historical approach, but still with some personal stories. Today, we look at three battles where Australian infantry overcame overwhelming odds and the parallels of these engagements over three different wars. Angus Horden hosted this panel. The first returning guest is David Buckwalter. David, a Vietnam veteran, has appeared on this podcast a few times before. He came back for this episode not to speak about his military service, but in regards to the Battle of Wow in World War II, a subject he is most knowledgeable and passionate about. The second guest is Michael Kelly, an historian at the Australian War Memorial and a leading authority on the Korean War. Michael has also served in the Australian Army. For this podcast, Michael came to speak about the Battle of Kapyong in the Korean War. The third guest has not appeared on this podcast before. Peter Slack-Smith served in the Vietnam War in Delta Company, 6RAR, and is a survivor of the Battle of Long Tan. Peter shared his story as a part of this panel discussion. I'm Angus Horden. I'd like to introduce David Buckwalter, who has been with us before. G'day, Angus. Secondly, I'd like to thank Michael Kelly, who's come up from Canberra. Angus, thank you very much for having me back again. And I'd like to thank Peter Slack-Smith, who also has come up from Canberra today, one of our last survivors of Delta Company and the Long Tan Engagement. We're very grateful to have him here. Pleasure, Angus. Gentlemen, today it's an interesting discussion. We're all students of history. And I want us to think back at a couple of significant engagements in the past. And if we go back to ancient history, we've all learned about the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC with the Greeks fighting the Persians. And there's this heroic stand at Thermopylae Pass. And you've got 300 Spartan immortals with Leonidas, their Spartan king, and arguably another 700 Thebans or other Greeks who are left holding this pass against arguably a a huge Persian juggernaut. It's recorded as, you know, 100,000, whatever the number is, it's, it's lots of people. For seven days, this battle goes backwards and forwards until the pass is betrayed and the Persians outflank and slaughter Leonidas and his men to the last. And then we we look at Rourke's Drift, which is a more modern story, 22nd and 23rd of January, 1879. And you've got an engagement between the British and the Zulus. You've got 100, 150 British soldiers, you know, mostly Welsh, up against 4,000 elite Zulus, all with their assegai spears. And these guys were fresh off the victory from Isandwana, and they were after wiping out the mission statement at Rourke's Drift. And for those two days, the British held out. And again, there's a great 
painting of this particular engagement here in the New South Wales Art Gallery in Sydney. My great-grandfather, out of interest, was actually in the relief force that went on to Ulundi and took over and, and captured King Ketawehu at the end. So I've grown up with this battle in mind. And we've had the opportunity throughout all of our interviews this year and the previous to talk to many of you. And there are, from the previous century, three particular engagements of Australian men, which I think we need to talk about today. And you're all here because you're all experts in those. And in fact, two of you were actually involved in one of them. So we're going to be talking about the Battle of Wow with David. We're going to be talking about the Battle of Kapyong in Korea with Michael. And specifically, we'll be talking about the Battle of Long Tan with Peter. What I'd like to start off with is perhaps we just give a background of each of these battles. So, David, could you tell us about WOW? WOW is a big battle. I want you to focus on Sherlock's historic stand with his hundred men, which was really, as you have told us previously, the engagement that saved WOW. We had uh, a company of uh, the 2nd, 6th A Company, which was commanded by Lieutenant, or originally Lieutenant uh, Sherlock, who just recently became captain and was really uh, underranked as far as... uh, being a company commander. He was reinforced by uh, one platoon from the 2nd, 5th Independent Company and they were expecting to do a patrol down the Jap track, which was a ridgeline separating two known tracks going down to the coast at Salamau and Leh. The battle actually started approximately at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. They had forward scouts out up the top, a listening post. So they traditionally did two listening posts, one forward of the other. Troops were sent forward as listening posts at the early hours of the morning, two hours on, one hour off. Tom Garrett was uh, on duty at the time. At one o'clock, they changed shift and he started to return to the main body when they heard Japanese coming. So a few minutes later, a fellow named John Noble opened up with the Bren gun but it jammed after three shots and a fistfight ended up taking place between Noble and several of the Japanese and the first shots were fired and uh, our first casualty of the battle took place. They ran back down the hill and uh, told Sherlock what was going on. Sherlock came forward to see what was going on and then at about 4am in the morning, the first mortars came whistling over the top of the trees and uh, Tom Garrett was one of the first casualties there that day and within half an hour he was on his way back down to the Bololo River. So if we imagine the ridge line is a very narrow uh, track It's only maybe about 10 metres wide and it drops off virtually vertical on either side. So getting the massive force of the Japanese about two and a half thousand through is a slow process and only just above where Sherlock was, the ridge started to spread out into a series of spurs that might be like a spider's feet, I suppose. At that point, they were able to control the Japanese, but as the numbers increased, Sherlock realised that he was not in a very good defensive position, so he retreated back down to a position on top of one of these spurs. This gave him a height advantage of uh, about 30 metres, where they were able to shoot down on the Japanese. They held out for about a day and a half, and... uh, Eventually, uh, they were run overrun. They had to uh, retreat further down the hill. 
So, Dave, you've explained how Sherlock is fighting this withdrawal. And importantly, as you've told us before, all these reinforcements fly in to the airport. So, David, can you explain Sherlock's action in holding up the Japanese so that we could actually land reinforcements as well? Once Sherlock realised that he was going to be in a difficult position to defend against the Japanese, he retreated to a position on top of one of these spurs, which were about 30 metres higher, enabling them to shoot down on the Japanese. He was in company headquarters slightly in the rear. Nine platoon was up front and was taking the initial brunt of all that, the action. After about three hours of this battle, they were being overrun. Sherlock yelled out they were being overrun and uh, Alan Smith, who was the runner, recounted the story where 14 guys from company headquarters raced forward bayonets, fixed bayonets, and overrun the Japanese, allowing, uh, allowing them to refocus on the spot, basically. So, Michael, can you please tell us about what happened in Cap Yong around Anzac Day in 1951? The Chinese had launched an offensive which was expected on the 22nd of April and had routed the 6th Republic of Korea Army Division forward of the Kapyong Valley. In the days leading up to that, the South Koreans had moved forward up the valley and sighted themselves in defensive positions. The Australians, uh, as part of the 27th Brigade, had actually gone into rest positions and were uh, basically waiting to celebrate or commemorate Anzac Day with the New Zealanders, their British allies, and also an elements of the, uh, the Turkish Brigade. So they weren't really expecting to be fighting a battle so soon after going into rest positions, after fighting their way up as part of Matthew General Matthew Ridgeway's bite and hold operations of their uh, their own spring offensive. The Chinese launched their offensive on the 22nd, routing the uh, Korea 6th Division, which then brought the 27th British Brigade into play. Peter, can you tell us now, in August 1966, you were up in Vietnam, what happened at Long Tan? Gee, I'm not sure I can put... <laughs> There's a simple answer to that, Angus. We were on a company patrol, the third of three company patrols that were sent out to respond and look for a group of enemy that had mortared and shelled the base on the night of the 16th, 17th of August. The 17th of August, the other two company patrols had looked around the area of the Long Tan rubber plantation from whence mortaring, etc., had originated and located the mortar base plates positions but couldn't find much else. They did have contacts. They found signal wire. They actually sighted enemy, but didn't know it. (laughs) The enemy waved. They waved back. The aggregation of these indications wasn't put together somehow. The penny didn't drop. These fellows that were dressed in green, etc., represented something bigger than the uh, normal Viet Cong guerrilla bunch. David, can you tell us about the leadership at WOW? How good was Sherlock and the other leaders? How good was Sherlock? Sherlock was brilliant. Everybody else was pretty ordinary. The initial uh, reinforcements to the WOW Valley had only taken place on the 14th of January and they had spread out the whole company, or whole battalion, sorry, over many, many miles in those days. So neither of the companies were able to make contact with each other in the event of some action. The second, fifth independent company, which had been in the area for the last eight or nine months, were the only company that had only troops, were about 300, which were actually doing reconnaissance all around the area. For some reason or other, they were never tasked with following the trail that was known where the people of Wandumi would use to get to the coast across the top of the ridgeline, and it was never wrecked. 
David, you've told us about the heroism of this man. What happened to him? After the 9 platoon was overrun and they managed to retake the position, they were forced into a withdrawal. By this stage, the admin company or company headquarters, battalion headquarters had come up from Wow and was occupying a position just above the river where Sherlock fell back to. They held out overnight, but they were in a position now with Japs all around them attacking on all fronts. Early in the morning, about 8 o'clock, they uh, decided that they had to get out of there and they shot their way out. Unfortunately already, Japanese had occupied both sides of the river. There were two only crossings of the, the river. One was over a swinging bridge, which was further south of their position. And then just below where they were, there was a log bridge they were going to use. Sherlock and a couple of other troops ran across this, or worked their way across the bridge and the machine gun opened up Sherlock yelled out, are you Aussies? And the next second a burst of ammunition came his way and uh, that was the end of uh, Sherlock and the two guys that went with him. Michael, we don't know enough about Korea, but there was great leadership by some of the men there. Can you share with us, please? Most definitely. I think on all fronts, there's uh, the company commanders, especially uh, Ben O'Dowd, provides some sterling leadership, not only through the battle uh, looking after A Company, but his company isn't the first one contacted. Unfortunately, when three RAR are actually put into the line, it's uh, split up in a way by Brigadier Burke, who is commanding the 27th Brigade after Recode handed over command. Burke is forced to leave Battalion Headquarters Company in the valley to try and stop the refugees and also try and encourage the South Korean soldiers to stop and fight as well. So the company headquarters is left exposed and this is where uh, the battalion commander, Bruce Ferguson, is at the start of the battle. Uh, and his companies are actually up in the hills, uh, spread out, and they're not able to really mutually support each other. So the company commanders like O'Dowd and Saunders are able to uh, manage their own affairs, but uh, O'Dowd then becomes the battle to IC, if you like, up in the hills after the communication breaks down when uh, company headquarters is taken, or battalion headquarters, sorry, is taken out of the battle during the, uh, the initial stages of the fighting. But there's some amazing leadership that's shown throughout the night of the uh, the 23rd and the 24th, and also during the withdrawal back down the Kapyong Valley. But uh, Ferguson, I think, uh, we hear a lot about O'Dowd and Saunders. Ferguson is not so well remembered and he really should be. I mean, unfortunately, he's left in a really nasty position where his company's attacked first, companies further back, but they're attacked literally out of a stream of refugees and fleeing South Korean soldiers by the Chinese who've infiltrated them. So battalion headquarters of 3RAR comes under attack directly from the Chinese and is then, after a serious engagement, forced to withdraw further back down the valley to where the brigade headquarters and the Middlesex uh, battalion are by this stage. Ferguson, rather than actually staying within the lines, actually rides up on Sherman tanks to the forward lines, taking ammunition up and bringing wounded back. But he knows there's no way he can now get into the hills to try and take control of his battalion. So when he is able to communicate with O'Dowd, he leaves O'Dowd in charge of fighting the action back out of the area once they realise actually you have to withdraw. But uh, I think Ferguson is quite poorly remembered by some sections of army today. And his memory, as far as a battle leader, is quite poorly handled today, certainly. Peter, can you tell us about the leadership at Long Tan? Yes, well, from my view, the company commander was very good. Our platoon commander, the same. The senior commanders, I think, were probably captives of their earlier experience with the Japanese, Koreans and the like, and overlooked a lot of the aspects of the Vietnamese, at least North Vietnamese style of running a war. But the immediate leadership, yes, we had great confidence in them. Well, certainly if I had to do it all again, I'd, uh, I'd prefer to do it with the fellows, the, the leaders that I had then. 
Peter, I remember you telling me in the thick of the engagement, bullets are going everywhere, you guys are all hugging the ground, and fortunately, Charlie is firing a little bit high, so that's keeping you alive. But amongst all this, you told me about this man that was walking around directing the fight, leading you. Who was that man? Oh, that was Jack Kirby, the company sergeant major. He was nominated for a Victoria Cross withdrawn a series of appeals, still unsuccessful, but Jack Kirby's efforts on that day were quite astounding. He really did get about so much that there's no actual account of what he was doing. We could see that he was standing and moving around, but there was so much fire coming in that you really couldn't tell what he was doing because uh, he might be geeing up some fellas in one corner, distributing some ammunition in another, taking ammunition off some that didn't quite need it so much. And I witnessed him personally pick up Harley Webb, very big man in the midst of very, very heavy fire, pick him up, shoulder him, carry him into the aid post. The point to be overlooked here is it probably doesn't seem such an outstanding move when others get equal awards under heavy fire. But the fire that Jack Kirby risked to pick up Harley Webb was really suicidal. He shouldn't have survived the trip. Gentlemen, we hear about these stories. I mean, David, you'd concur that Sherlock would be a man worthy of a posthumous VC. But let's talk about the numbers here. So if we go back to the beginning, and I quoted at Thermopylae, you had, you know, like Leonidas and some Thebans. So let's say there's a thousand fighting off at least a hundred thousand Persians. And at Rourke's Drift, you know, we've got probably a hundred Welshmen with Martini Henrys, and then you've got some cooks and some other hangers-ongs. So you've literally got a hundred good rifles versus 4,000 assegais of the Zulus. So, at wow, can you tell us what the numbers were of our guys, David, lining up against the Japanese? There were about 80 all told initially, which comprised of something in the order of about 60 of the 2nd 6A Company, one platoon of uh, independent company in the companies of the commando unit. And then uh, after they withdrew, then they were reinforced with a, uh, a makeshift company from battalion headquarters and one platoon came over from Ballums in the south from the 2nd 5th Battalion. By the time they retreated, yeah, they were, there was most probably in the vicinity of about 150, I suppose. The casualties were enormous. When Sherlock started just before they retreated to make contact with the group from WOW, Sherlock said to Smith, his runner, let's go forward and just check how many of the boys are left. They counted 18, 20 including themselves. Some of them had withdrawn by taking the casualties out themselves, but essentially they lost a lot of guys. The boys at WOW had already been in the region unsupplied, as I understand, for some time, so their strength wasn't great. We're talking about the second, fifth independent company. Yeah, Sherlock's boys. They'd been there since May of 42. They were spread out over miles and miles and miles. They had very little food supply whatsoever because the only way to get it was by air. And up until that point in time, there was very little air coverage by the US Air Force. And what was there was being used at Kokoda all earlier on. So whenever a platoon went out on patrol, typically, say, for four or five days, they had two or three days rations with them. So we've got guys who are not well supplied and they're facing off against how many Japanese? Well... 
totally close to about two and a half thousand. Okay, so what's the caliber? We're talking about a brigade equivalent to three battalions. So the Japanese, I think it's the 102nd Regiment from Rabaul that descend on Sherlock's boys. The crack troops, the well trained, they had made a bad decision about how they were going to move to Wow. They took rations with them when they left Salamoa. By the time they got to, to Wow, they had already used up considerable amount of them. They tended to uh, eat a bit too much of it with the purpose of not having to carry the stuff up the hill. Once you got up to the top of the ridge line, there's no water. I'd been in the area trekking around the place and just you really only needed one water bottle because there was so much water coming off the hills. But once, once you got to the top, like I did, no water. So they moved through the, uh, the top of that ridge line without any, any resupply of food whatsoever. Painting the picture, Sherlock with his 80 boys versus up to 2,500, still pretty well supplied, pretty strong Japanese. He, Sherlock had a hell of a fight on his hand. He definitely did. Michael, can you tell us about your battle in Kapyong? You've got a brigade, but how many Chinese are actually up against our guys? You've got a division's worth, so about 10,000 Chinese that have actually broken through in the Kapyong Valley, facing around 650 Australians and a similar amount of uh, Canadians uh, on the other side of the valley, holding up their hill as so well. So would you say this Chinese division is evenly split between us and the Canadians, or initially they hit us more? Initially, they hit the Australians first. The Canadians are left alone except, except for a bit of mortaring and uh, the shelling with uh, some heavies from the Chinese. But uh, the Australians take the bulk of it on the night of the 23rd and 24th and all throughout the day on the 24th as well. The Australians hold firm in their, in their positions and then withdraw during the night of the 24th in heavy contact with the Chinese before the Chinese then switch their attempts to the, uh, the Canadians. Peter, in, in your Delta company, you know, 6 Battalion, 6 RAR, can you tell us what was your complement going into the field? Exactly. 105 Australians and three Kiwis in the forward observation artillery party. We'll never know exactly how many of the enemy you were fighting, but what's the best guesstimate that you're up against? Hard to say, but look, we know it's somewhere around two to three thousand but probably around a thousand no more than a thousand directly engaged us that doesn't mean we didn't directly engage more of them because we had artillery firing in depth as well as immediate support let's talk about that artillery so peter not leaving you right now can you tell us about what the key weaponry was in your battle You've just mentioned artillery. Was there anything else? We had the infantry, that is, basically rifles and machine guns. The machine guns, very mediocre value in that they had a naked belt feed and were prone to jamming with mud or uh, any other impediments that were picked up in the belts. The rifles, very, very good. So the rifle, this is the old SLR? Yes. And the machine guns, the M60? Yes. Right. Yes, I know with, with an SLR, you could bring a man down with that as opposed to an M16, it tended to bounce off him a bit. Exactly. How important was, you said artillery, how important was the artillery to you at Long Tan? Oh, definitely the difference in the two big attacks when the company was consolidated, uh, couldn't go anywhere, locked onto the wounded. The artillery batteries, first field regiment it was, there were 18 105mm guns and they were direct support, class support, and they were brought in as close as you could safely bring them in, which meant they were landing about 70 yards out. The American 155mm guns 
I think were not trusted to, for close support in those days, and they were given the task of sweeping the rearward area. Subsequent discoveries proved that they did in fact drop a few on the right spot too. They had a very large lethal radius, their big shells. They would have done their share of the damage too. But the close support batteries were incredible. There wasn't a single drop shot to my knowledge, and they only had a few metres maybe 10, 15 metres clearance above the uh, tops of the rubber trees, and there were no tree bursts over the position. They had the uh, elevation accurate to within 10 or 15 metres, and it was wonderful to see. It also sounds life-safe. Oh, yes. There were some arguments by Harry Smith. He had to be uh, very emphatic in getting the guns of the whole regiment in support. But uh, when he did, uh, to see 18 guns firing, especially when they had them on uh, open fire, I've forgotten what the command is, I think the artillery observer just said, give me gunfire, give me gunfire, which meant they could let them go pretty much at will. In the final attack, they were landing at three shells every two seconds. So it was... Devastating. Devastating. And a few of those were tree bursting. And you could see it in the half dark. The illumination would silhouette the enemy as well. And I understand that the Air Force, the helicopters, came in with some resupply. Yes, there was a lull at one stage when the when the company was uh, from its dis- initial dispersed positions was consolidated. There was a lull in very very heavy storm conditions, which allowed uh, to a helicopter resupply to slip in in the brief gap that was there. Michael, if we can move to you, because I know you've shared with us how important artillery was at Kapyong. The New Zealanders, you can't give them too much credit for what they did at, at Kapyong. The infantry certainly did the hard fighting. There's no no question about it. The Canadians and especially the Australians over the 23rd and 24th, throughout the 24th as well. But without the Kiwis, it would have been a different story altogether. The Australian forward positions, just through sheer weight of numbers of the Chinese alone, because they also had mortar support and were able to fire mortar support onto the Australian positions too. The New Zealanders had already been up the Kapyong Valley twice. They were already up the valley supporting the Rock Division when they were broken, brought back into the valley, went forward again with the Middlesex Battalion, were brought back again once they realised that they weren't going to be able to uh, to stay and fight it out. And when they came back that second time, they were further back down the valley than where they'd expected to be, and they hadn't had a chance to register their guns. And it's the thing that uh, having forward observers parties with the, the Australians and also the Canadians, able to bring in uh, accurate fire and with limited ammunition, the Kiwis were running short of ammunition very quickly, but there was more supply being brought up. But it was basically every man to the guns, and uh, throughout the night of the uh, the 23rd and the morning of the 24th, there was well in excess of 10,000 rounds fired in support of the Australians, and also once the Chinese had switched the battle to the Canadians. Similar amount of rounds that second night as well. So the Kiwi gunnery, along with uh, some American mortaring as well, and, and the American uh, 105s at the battle, but uh, predominantly the Kiwis, provided literally life-saving support to the Australians and the Canadians in in the valley, saving the the valley from being overrun by the Chinese, which would have directly opened up Seoul again. So you can't give them too much credit at all. And Michael, the guns we're talking about, these are the World War II 25-pounders? Most definitely. They're uh, still using the 25-pounder guns. Yeah, great gun. And the average rifle, it was the... Still using the 303, so the Canadians and the Australians are both using 303s. Slightly different variants, but still the same ammunition. So it's World War II. Kapyong runs for a couple of days, and there's another dimension in your battle. So as far as weaponry goes, we've got the rifles, we've got the basic borders, but we've got this artillery, but you've also got air support. 
Most definitely. The uh, the Australians are unfortunate victims of this air support as well with... Uh, a bit of Yankee-friendly fire. Unfortunately, there's uh, uh, US Marines who are in, uh, fighting an adjacent battle at the same time are able to lay on air support. And the Ford Observer who's fired a rocket out of their aircraft, it's either been taken by the wind or just misplaced uh, on the ground. And despite the marker panels there, that the uh, a couple of US Marine Corps airs have actually come in and dropped napalm uh, on the Australian positions, which killed two Australians and uh, grievously burnt a number of others as well. So D Company actually uh, took the brunt of this. One of the veterans who I've spoken to previously had actually said he was in a pit right near where the first canister struck and he felt the heat literally just wash over him and he wasn't burnt. But he saw the fire rip across a couple of the pits where his mates were and uh, it, uh, it affected him quite deeply. But uh, US air support, again, was quite instrumental uh, when it was actually on target. This was the only incident where it actually hit the Australians, but it was devastating, again, to the Chinese, Chinese attackers as they attacked the Australian positions. So, David, I've heard from Peter about these fantastic 105mm artillery shells and I've heard from Michael about these 25-pounders. What did your boys have at WOW as far as weaponry? The company had two-inch mortars. They ran out of that stuff pretty quickly and after that they had zero. It wasn't till after Sherlock was killed and the troops started arriving on the ground that we managed to get a couple of 25-pounders in. They did an unbelievable job because they came in on a couple of planes. Two hours, they had these guns together and firing. And probably, like Michael's battle, not registered, just... No target registration whatsoever. Can we talk about the actual... And I think we've touched on this, but if we talk about this battle that's happened, so we know how many men, we know what sort of weapons. So, David, if we just stay with you, so you've talked to us about this force of 100 men or even less. They're undergunned, they're undermanned, they're doing this fighting withdrawal. And the key to the Battle of Wow, as you've explained to us, is this airstrip. Can you just put two and two together for us and explain the significance of Sherlock's delaying action the reinforcements arrive at the same time the Japanese arrive at the airstrip. And could you tell us what would have happened if Sherlock had been one hour slower? Quite simple. The Japanese were at the airport and some of the guys were being, who'd retreated from Sherlock's party and made, the guys who got there early came under fire from the Japanese at the airport before, that was even on, on the day before, on the 29th. And it wasn't till the next morning there was heavy cloud covering the valley. All looked like lost, basically. They had US Air Force fighters overhead looking for a break in the weather. When they finally saw it, nine o'clock in the morning, the first planes came into the DC-3s landing, two abreast, uphill, unloading the guys. It's an hour, most probably. The big advantage was that there was chaos and the Japanese really didn't know exactly where they were going. They didn't know how to cross the river in the first place. If they were properly organised and they'd wrecked that valley earlier on before they made their trip, they would have got to the airport and they would have taken us out easy. And game over. If they would have only known how many they were facing, they would have just walked in. Michael, can you tell us what actually happened at Kapyong, that you've got the weaponry, you've got the men, what actually happens in the actual fighting and the action? The Australians are contacted late in the evening of the 23rd, but they'd literally been only put into their positions that afternoon. So once they realised, the Brigadier had realised that uh, his men were actually going to be uh, needed a lot quicker than thought of with the Koreans retreating, they were then put into their positions, the Canadians on their hill as well. There's been a bit of an argument as well about the emplacement of the Australians. You've got B Company on a hill of its own with American tanks in support and you've got uh, A, C and D companies in the hills. None of the companies are actually able to mutually support, uh, which makes the fighting quite tough. 
But uh, the Chinese actually start to hit the Australians. Uh, and as I said, they hit uh, BHQ first and basically force BHQ to withdraw during the night. That takes out one element of, of command and control straight away when your battalion commander isn't able to uh, directly influence the battle. But uh, this is where Ben O'Dowd does take control uh, with A Company, but also has uh, C and D Company or C Company's uh, Saunders. You've also got th those guys fighting off with the Chinese as well who are trying to envelop the Australian positions. So they hold throughout the night of the 23rd, and this is a lot of hand-to-hand -hand fighting. A lot of forward positions are being taken and then rewon from the Chinese as well, but also artillery support. Even in a couple of shells in short burst fire, the Kiwis at this stage have got a fair bit of ammunition and are able to support uh, quite heavily. Throughout the night, the Australians hold, and then on the, the morning of the 24th, it's the Chinese turn. The daylight catches them in the open, and the Australians are able to take a fair toll of the Chinese throughout the 24th. And then that night, things obviously change again with the Chinese using the night to infiltrate and then put direct attacks in again. And it's the Kiwi gunnery again, which keeps them at bay for a little while. But uh, then they realise that about to get surrounded and need to withdraw. And they do withdraw. The companies get away, but uh, A Company in particular withdraws in contact still with the Chinese. And it's the Canadians who are over on their hill who witness the Chinese still in close contact and actually shooting across the valley to break up the Chinese as well with their 50 cal and 30 cal weapons to actually have that reach. And the Australians think they're being shot at sort of friendly fire style, but the Canadians are saying, look, no, 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 we can actually see the Chinese. We're trying to help break it off. And it's the night actually helps the Australians as well with their withdrawal. They, there's a couple of spurs coming off the ridge they're withdrawing down. And they actually withdraw down the wrong one to where the Capion River is. It's almost by accident they break contact with the Chinese by going down the wrong spur and the Chinese are left open and the, the Canadians take a fair toll of them across the valley. But uh, they withdraw back down to the ford, then hold firm and withdraw back down into the, where the Middlesex and the Brigade headquarters are and the Canadians are left on their hill and that's where the Chinese on the, uh, the, the night of the day of the 25th and the night of the 25th uh, attack the, the, uh, the Canadians on that hill. And again, it's a very close run thing. The, the Kiwi artillery at some point is firing only one or two shells a minute because that's basically they're down to almost no ammunition. But that fire literally on Canadian positions, they're, they're calling it onto their own positions to stop the Chinese who have broken into some of the positions already from actually going any further. And the Canadians are able to uh, hold their, those positions uh, in the end and stay firm by the end of the battle. So Peter, can we go back to the end of your battle? How was it actually wrapped up? That was lovely. The battle had started at four, ended at seven, and progressed in severity over the three hours. So we were mentally exhausted. We'd been through the various stages of fear. We had sustained one big attack and driven it off with the artillery help, and then we were pretty much at the end of, I suppose, the second or in the midst of the second big attack. At this stage, mentally at least, and our prospects were on the scaffold, if you like. And then there was the sweetest sound I've ever heard, was the muffled growl of an APC. And it was a severing of the hangman's rope, if you like. And at the same time, B Company, or a platoon of them, emerged on the south side, the same time as A Company arrived in the carriers, as luck would have it, my heart sunk when I saw the greens coming out of the bush behind us. And then I recognised Peter Hanney in B Company, an old schoolmate. <laughs> I thought, well, we've, we've made it here. We've made it. We've got armour and friends. The sense of elation is beyond description. So, Peter, at Long Tan, you mentioned that you went into this battle with about 100 guys. How many did you lose? The 
official score in the after-action report is 42 killed and wounded. There were quite a few minimal wounds, and I'd categorise these two ways. One, that some fellows had been wounded and didn't know it. (laughs) They were so full of adrenaline they'd got bits and pieces put into them here and there and holes. The other was fellows who considered it more important to... uh, stay with the stay on the field and keep playing uh, even though they knew they'd had a minor wound and weren't reported so i suppose there'd be three or four of those at least but the 42 killed and wounded is the uh, after action report score 17 of the uh, killed were d company one from the uh, personnel carriers and the balance whatever that is wounded peter we uh, met at the war memorial last year and we walked along the honor roll and I remember you pointing to a name and you told me that he was your mate and he was the last guy to be killed mm. at Long Tan. Well, yes, who who that, was that? That was Paul Large. And luckily, uh, he got a good, clean one straight through the forehead. No suffering involved for Paul. And how many of the enemy did you take down? A gap in my all my life. We really don't know. They were very good at obscuring their casualties. They would uh, drag uh, wounded bodies off the field during the battle. That, that was a very important part of their tactic. They often had a cane loop tied to their lower leg for the purpose of it. There were subsequent finds of graves and evidence of artillery hits along their withdrawal routes. I've tried to estimate it out. I think there's probably a, a minimum of 300 would have been killed and that would be a very low conservative minimum. The nominal body count was 245 on the field but you must remember that this is in a rubber plantation that's got low bush in it. There's been a lot of tree bursting and uh, artillery so the ground is littered with a lot of fresh green debris in a tangled mess. There could well have been bodies. There almost certainly would be a number of bodies that were just never found and seriously wounded that crawled off to the side bodies. Some bodies were found later. I think one grave found later had 20 in it. But you've got to make some estimations here. In A Company's case in the carriers, I know they had a record of their ammunition expenditure. A Company got to approach the battalion trying to block off and surround our southwestern side. But because of the noise of the artillery in the battle that we were involved in, their attention was drawn to it and any movement of the carriers was muffled by it, that sound. So the carriers got to approach within 30 or 40 metres of a battalion who then withdrew across their front. Now, the carriers fired 900 rounds of 50 calibre weaponry at these fellows. Well, you make your own guesses. If you fire 900 rounds of 50 calibre, I mean, even tankies can hit something. Peter, it's interesting. We had a gentleman by the name of Sandy McGregor in here before, and Sandy shared with us that he regularly goes back to Vietnam each year and he goes to where the Long Tan Cross is and where Australians go back to Vietnam to commemorate, equally the Vietnamese go to commemorate their losses. And he's become quite pally with the local people. And I remember one of their sources said that they lost at least a thousand in all the mourning and the people that were taken from them. And uh, the point is, is that 
very few men stood against very many and you survived. Michael, can we talk about how many of our guys we lost at Kapyong and what damage we did? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, 32 Australians are killed, 59 are wounded, and the body, there's not much of a chance to count bodies, but there's well over a thousand Chinese killed during the, the two nights of the fighting. So it uh, doesn't annihilate a division, but it certainly seriously uh, hurts the, uh, the Chinese division who are attacking. Uh, and when the US 5th Cavalry arrive uh, on the 25th, they then spend a bit of time in contact with the Chinese division uh, before the, the fighting comes to an end and the Chinese withdraw. So it's a, it's a pretty near run thing, but uh, 32 Australians are killed, 59 wounded, along with uh, several Kiwis as well. David, what are the um, story of Wow? In terms of Japanese casualties, about half. There are two mass graves up in Wow, and there are about 1,500 there. We lost about 100 over the period of time, over the four or five days, before we were able to push the Japanese back out of the Wow Valley and down back down the, the track. How many of Sherlock's boys got out? As I said earlier on, there were um, the original party, they, they counted eight, 20, including themselves. There was 10 or 15. That, so you can half of Sherlock's boys would have been casualties, either wounded or killed. What strikes me in these battles is this credible fog of war, which is typical of really of all conflict, but especially in these three engagements. But there were some things that, when you throw the dice, luck fell our way. David, what were the lucky things that happened for the Australians at WOW? The stupidity of the Japanese. <laughs> I mean, they didn't do their, their reconnaissance uh, initially. As the boys have said, if they only knew how many were there, they would have just walked right past them. When they did make contact with Sherlock, why they bothered particularly engaging him, I don't really know. There was, once they got out of the bush at the top of the, the ridge, there was ample room to spread out wide and bypass him altogether, leave a, a hundred or something there to keep them pinned down. The original idea was to attack Waiaia Strip on the 27th. It got postponed to the following day and they didn't get anybody there till the day after that. And by that stage, the Japanese were all over the valley. Nobody knew where, where the other one was. The communication was hopeless. For reasons also, which I, I'd have to say is luck, is uh, five minutes away is uh, the Malay airstrip and the Salamau airstrip, five minutes away by air. There were no Japanese planes used during the battle, whereas, you know, they could have come over and just annihilated Sherlock's lot easily. Michael, can you tell us what went our way at Capion? I think leadership, you can't stress highly enough, the leadership of the Canadians especially. They're a largely untried battalion. Their commanding officer is a Second World War veteran. Same thing with the Australians and the Kiwis. All of the Australian company commanders are Second World War veterans. The CO is a 39er. He'd been in from 39 to 45. He'd been a military cross recipient at Templeton's Crossing on, uh, in New Guinea. was an outstanding experienced battle leader. The same as the New Zealand CO as well, Second World War uh, through and through. Brigadier Burke had also been throughout the Second World War as well. So there's this core leadership of guys who had already served and seen heavy action. A number of the Australian soldiers were part of K-Force and had come back. They'd seen service during the Second World War as well. And they were serving alongside young professional diggers who were basically in their first war and uh, they acquitted themselves really well. But you can't knock or go past leadership as far as being the key instrument of what won this battle uh, for the Australians and, and the Canadians. And were we lucky at Capion? 
Yes, yeah, I think uh, it's the overwhelming Chinese numbers could have really changed the battle if they'd been used correctly. If they'd attacked the Canadians at the same time as the Australians, Kiwi artillery wouldn't have been able to cover two battlefronts at once. And I think the way the Chinese attacked really was to their own detriment. And they were able to be held by serious infantry engagement, but also the power of artillery as well. Peter, how were we lucky at long term? Very, very lucky. The luck, the luck is probably the, the biggest segment of the of what can be said about long term good management bad management guns or storms or this that and the other but it was the compounding of the luck it was the mindset to begin with and david buckwalter just said a few things about that a while ago we were lucky in that we hadn't seen a serious engagement we'd had a long period of training then an infield indoctrination of a series of smaller and increasing contacts but we were the hunters they were the hunted that was the the superior mindset that we had there were a lot of other things the other one being the dispersion of the platoons this would normally be an atrocious arrangement to have have your platoon separated when taking on a very much superior force they could do your piecemeal and they probably would have but for the big thunderstorm so they couldn't get a grip on us we with our mindset being aggressive when 11 platoon was stopped up the front probably the last thing they expected was to have a flanking attack put in on them which is what we did around one side, which must have confused them somewhat. Then another flanking attack comes at them from the other side. The mice was biting the elephant's other foot. And then there was the rain, which it wasn't just rain or storm, it was a phenomenal storm. It blanketed and blacked out just about everything, just at the time when our platoons had to withdraw and consolidate and allowed us to bring to get most of the wounded back, allowed the ammunition resupply, etc. There was the further luck from the storm is the fact that we were already down in firing positions. The rain was so heavy that it churned the earth and washed the mud over us and we were perfectly camouflaged. Our packs, our hair, our hats, everything was just red mud. The human eye picks up the movement. Charlie has to stand and move towards us. We're lying prone camouflage. I think we were probably seeing Charlie 50 metres before he saw us as well. The artillery, which was firing again on about the perfect range, it was coming from behind us into Charlie, which meant it could go over our heads. The cast of shrapnel was therefore forward, no danger to us, and therefore it could come in close. So it goes on. The flash from the shell illuminates Charlie, but not us. So we've got it again. Look, I could I could go on, but I, I can't recall that many aspects of the luck story, but it was luck after luck after luck. It was the camp compounding series of luck. It was Charlie's luck that he had, bad luck, that he used an AK-47. It has a low centre of gravity to its mass, and on firing, rotates with the recoil. Charlie fires a four-round burst, the first one's on target, the next three lift. We're firing uh, along the lines of old-fashioned musketry, single-aim shot. Single-aim shot with an SLR beats the, uh, the man who's given away his position every time. Probably the best luck of all would be, in the end, I don't know whether by good luck or 
perhaps design, but the last lot of artillery that came down, I believe it was something like a thousand shells in 12 minutes, which was the difference just before A Company got there. My heart goes out to that brave man. Let's hope it was a brave man, not by accident, but there was an artillery commander who sanctioned or condoned or at least did not apprehend that expenditure of shell. It was the right amount of shell at the right time, bearing in mind the task for stocks of artillery was only 6,000 rounds in total. So they let go a whole sixth of the task force reserves in the last 10 minutes. They couldn't have gone on for another 10. It's a fantastic account. And we can really feel that we were there. If we look at the action that the boys went through. David, how many of Sherlock's boys had actually seen action before? About 50%, I would think. Alan Smith, who is the uh, Sherlock's runner, had seen no action at all. And uh, when uh, Sherlock came to him during the night in the heat of the battle and said, how are you going, Smithy? He said, oh, it's a bit hard, sir. He said, well, the brigadier's told us uh, we've got to fight to the last man and the last round of ammunition. Michael, how many of our guys had seen action before? Most of the battalion, actually, by this stage in Korea, had actually seen action. There was uh, very few replacements, or there were still replacements coming in. But from September, when the battalion, uh, 1950, when the battalion had arrived, they'd seen quite some heavy action up in North Korea from the Apple Orchard to uh, the battle at Pakchon in November, through the withdrawal over the winter in the spring as well, so with the forward movement again. So the battalion by Kapyong was a welded, hard-fighting professional unit, and... uh, with the replacements coming in who were making up the shortfall, but it was a good unit. And Peter, of your 100 boys, how many of them had seen action before? I don't think, or at least I can't recall, any of them that had seen really heavy action. A lot of us had had contacts, but a contact was usually a sighting by one or two of us, of a few of them, a flurry of shots, or perhaps even a single burst or single shot. Both sides dived for cover, both sides went the other way, and that was all over. Very exciting, but not a lot of danger, really. Gentlemen, we could talk for ages about these three incredible actions, but if I ask you now to draw your thoughts and leave us with a passing comment, David, what's your thought with regard to WOW? Total underestimation of the significance of the victory. Without it, we would have lost the WOW airport. It took nine months to force the Japanese out of Mubo, which was the village about halfway down the hill to Salamaua, and back into the corner at Ley and uh, Salamaua. If it took nine months to do that, if we hadn't have won the battle, how well would have the Japanese been dug in, well defended, when the 9th Division did its seaborne assault? They wouldn't have even attempted it because the odds would have been totally against them. So the victory is significance, and I don't understand why it is that it isn't told to people that way. Well, David, thanks to you, we certainly haven't forgotten it. I think uh, looking at Kapyong, history shows us that it is a really significant battle and is remembered as such as far as the Korean War goes. And it really did save Seoul and well, the UN line entirely from having to withdraw back below Seoul and put it back into Chinese and North Korean hands again. So it really is one of those key battles, along with the British fighting at the Imjin as well with the, the sacrifice of the Gloucesters and things like that. Kapyong is certainly one of those key battles in Korea, which does change the course of the war. 
Apart from the luck, the great benefit of not knowing what we were getting into. If I could say something that is not specifically related to um, to our particular action is that one of the great advantages of uh, being a combat soldier is you get to meet people who are going to actually be prepared to walk out there and get killed to save you. And it doesn't happen in, in civilian street ever. Yes. We have a a long-standing bond, and didn't matter which war you fought in, it always was the same. Somebody sent me a TV um, documentary on uh, on uh, Capyong, and when I listened to it and watched it on my computer at home, the tears were rolling down my eyes because I, you know, really related to what was going on. Just one of the boys. Well, whether you were at Wow, or whether you were at Capyong, or whether you were at Long Tan, what was certainly clear that. The boys were fighting for each other, and that's certainly what we've heard here today. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute honour and privilege to talk with you today about these three very significant Australian actions in the previous century, from World War II, the Battle of Wow, David Buckwalter, to Korea with Michael Kelly from the War Memorial, and then to Peter Slacksmith, who actually fought through and is a Delta Company survivor from Long Tan. We thank you all for your service, and we thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. Thank you, gentlemen. If you enjoyed that panel talk, be sure to listen to our three panel episodes from last year, Returning Home, The Vietnam War, and Life After Service. Also discover David Buckwalter's previous appearances on this podcast. Season one, number five, David Buckwalter, is his story of service in Vietnam. The Season 2 bonus episode, The Battle of Wow with David Buckwalter, goes into a lot more detail on this particular engagement. David was also in last year's Vietnam panel, and recently he spoke to Angus Horden about his grandfather, a German veteran of World War I, in An Iron Cross with David Buckwalter. And also check out the bonus episodes from last year, The Korean War with Michael Kelly, and Korean War MIA with Michael Kelly, for more on that conflict. Peter Slacksmith will return to the podcast in a future bonus episode. Look up www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and from there you can also find us on social media. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening and lest we forget. Mm-hmm.